Hey guys, on today's episode, I'm chatting with my friend Michelle Ferris from Counseling Recovery. So if you want to learn a little bit more on codependency and anger management, you're definitely not going to want to miss this episode. And make sure you stick around because at the end of the show, I have a special bonus giveaway for you. When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost. Welcome to the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, and my name is Tamar, your host. Have you ever felt like you were meant for more? Well, I help people discover their purpose so they can follow their passion and realize what they are truly capable of. My mission is to empower people in recovery to embrace their authentic selves, live up to their true potential, and answer the question, what lies beyond recovery for you? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, where I help you learn to rise in your recovery and create the life that you were truly meant to live. Now, before we get into today's episode, Just wanted to let you know about a workshop that I host. You may have heard it before, but I run this weekly. So come join me when you get a chance. It's called the Purpose to Empowerment Workshop. You can find it by heading over to www.theroadforward.ca slash purpose dash empowerment. And in that workshop, I tell you what it takes to have a healthy mind, what it takes to excel in life and why so many people don't. I also talk about why we procrastinate and what we can do about it and also how we can stop living in the past so we can actually start to create the future that we were truly meant to live. So come join me. It's absolutely free. Go to www.theroadforward.ca forward slash purpose dash empowerment and I hope to see you there. Space is limited so make sure you save your seat soon. Well, I am super grateful you could join me again today. I just love connecting with the guests that I'm able to have on the show, and today is no different. I'm chatting with my friend Michelle Ferris from Counseling Recovery. We talked about so many cool things, but uh, a couple of the topics we really focused on were, you know, how many of us in recovery struggle from codependency and of course how that affects other aspects of your life. Now I myself have been through it many times and there's still times today where I find myself reverting back to those old behaviors of codependency. So I think it is so important to be mindful of that and to know what to look for so you know when you're falling back into codependent behaviors and you can learn to get yourself out of them. We also talk about addiction and how it comes in so many different forms. Uh, we talk about you know how Michelle found her own passion in life doing what she does now, which is helping people to really find their own recovery. Um, and we also talk about that you know addicts and alcoholics are not bad people. And I think that this comes back down to the stigma again, right? Um, And for those of us that are in recovery and have been through it, you know, we can do, we have the potential to do so many amazing things. And that's what I want to really try to inspire on this show is that no matter what you've been through, 
you know, if you look at your adversity or your addiction as a gift, right, and stop focusing on the past and start focusing on taking that same energy that you use to get loaded, but, uh, you know, put that energy into something positive. It's amazing the impact that you can make in the world. But let's get into today's episode where you can hear more from my friend, Michelle Ferris. Welcome back, everybody. I am hanging out with my friend, Michelle Ferris from Counseling Recovery today. How are you? Hey, thanks. I am great and I'm really looking forward to our chat. Me too. So why don't we start off? You can tell us a bit about yourself and what led you to discovering your purpose in life. Yeah, so I'm a marriage and family therapist. I'm also, uh, I love personal growth, even as a kid. And I, um, I don't know, there was, it's funny because even when I was really little, I knew my family was dysfunctional and I wanted to figure it out not fix it, but I wanted to understand like, how could this be better? And literally at 12 years old, I asked my mom to go to therapy and she said, okay. I don't know how she said, okay, but she did. And we actually did some one on, you know, family counseling, just the two of us, my siblings weren't included, but it made me realize that, holy cow, there's help out there. And I kind of fell in love with it. So that was kind of the start of me realizing that that is where my passion is. I love people and I love figuring things out in terms of people's problems and where to get the relief. And so how did you know that you had found your calling? Because I find a lot of people, you know, they're interested in things and they kind of dive into it. And after a certain time, it's like, well, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I should learn something new. Yeah. Like how did you, you just knew? Uh, I knew I was a people person, but there was a time when, when I was in my master's program where I didn't do the MFT track because I wasn't sure I wanted to do one-on-one counseling. And then I don't know what made me change my mind, but I changed my mind. And in my internship, I was doing alcohol treatment and, oh, they were so lovely, the staff. And this one guy was super, super quiet. And I kind of picked him to do my first one-on-one session. And we started talking and I don't know, we had a few sessions and he, and he confessed that he was feeling suicidal and it was so sacred to me, like, holy cow, this person is trusting me with something that I knew he wasn't speaking up in in group or with the other therapists. And, you know, I got him help and we talked about it and to see the light bulb go off in his head of, oh my God, I can tell somebody and get help. And he left and he was crying and hugging me. And it was like, and that was the moment like, okay, I, I, I want to do this work because it was so gratifying to kind of see somebody's pain and just stay in it with them and then give them some relief. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's nothing like that. It is. And I remember when I first came into recovery and started to give back, mm-hmm. I, now I understand, right? When you give away what you receive, it actually helps you more than it helps the person that you're, you know, that is getting that information or that advice from you, because just yeah. to see that light go on, it's incredible feeling. Right. And it reinforces your own recovery. Cause I know that a lot of newcomers are afraid of getting a sponsor because they think, Oh, I don't want to bother anybody, especially if you're codependent. And yet, you know, you don't, 
you don't realize that you are actually helping the other person as much as you are them helping you. And once I tell them that, they're like, oh, okay. And then they're more open <laughs> to getting a sponsor. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So I know from experience, speaking of addiction, that it comes in so many different forms. I've probably got almost all of them. Now you deal with many as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about what it is you do and how you help others? Yeah, so I tend, like some of my clients come and they're still drinking and they want to do what's called harm reduction, uh, where they want to drink, drink less. And I will meet them where they're at. So I don't really, and I tell them up front, I'm not going to get you sober. I'm going to help you explore what works for you. Like is stress management a factor, self-care, relationship issues? You know, what's, what's going on that is, choosing, helping you choose that path of addiction, because there's reasons, right? We don't just choose to drink too much or eat too much or gamble. You know, there's reasons why we're doing that. So I like to meet the client where they're at. And even though, and I know this is a little different being a therapist, people might be surprised. I'm not super into like, okay, let's go knee deep in your childhood. It's more, how can I give them relief now because now they're hurting. We will get the, to the childhood and there are some important connections to make there, but I don't get stuck there because I know how hard it is to heal and people really need the tools today to be able to manage their relationships and start to feel better. I totally agree. And that's why I help people discover their purpose so that they don't get that complacency. And yeah. it's not like now what, but you talked about, you know, getting relief now. What does that look like sometimes? So usually it's self-care. Usually mm -hmm. they're not managing their stress level. They don't realize that they might be holding on to old hurt and resentment and they're going home to their partner and they're just sucking it all in. So of course, by the end of the day, <laughs> they need a, a relief valve and they choose to do some drinking or pot or whatever but they don't realize that if they could just handle whatever the issue is that's causing them the stress and have some other options, because what I tell them is, okay, let's have some other options. It doesn't mean, okay, let's go to AA. Because a lot of times if I say that too fast, they don't like it. And they're like, nope, not going there. But I wanna see if we can alleviate some of those initial symptoms so that at the end of the day, Drinking is not the only go-to they have. They might have three or four other things they can try. So I kind of go the back door a little bit because, you know, I'm not going to tell somebody to stop drinking. Who am I? <laughs> you know, that's their decision to make. Absolutely. And so why do you think there's so much resistance from people though? Like, you know, they know they need to stop. They know it's a problem, but they mm -hmm. don't want to get the help to get it. Well, I think that's why the whole hitting bottom concept is so key because, you know, even me, when I'm hurting with something, I don't really want to change unless it gets my attention. Because otherwise I'm going to want to keep doing what I'm always doing <laughs> because it's easier and it's automatic and I don't have to worry about it. And with drinking, especially, or with substances or codependent behavior, it's like most people have to hit a hard bottom to go, okay, uncle. I cannot keep doing what I'm doing because this is way too painful. And that's why to me, that's actually the good news, right? Because if you can get to that pain and sometimes in the harm reduction work, 
uh, it's really about helping them realize that, you know what, trying to have two beers a night is probably not going to work. But I can't tell them that. They have to discover that, yeah, you know what, I can't stop it too. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting as I was on in holidays when we were allowed to travel more, <laughs> I was on holidays in Mexico and I was drinking these mango smoothies. Um, and I love them, right? Because I, of course, it's those old habits where you're right. away and you're drinking and I'm not drinking alcohol, but I was listening to a podcast because food is my addiction now. And mm -hmm. a doctor came on and actually did studies about carb addiction. And he goes, you know, for me, I can't have one cookie my uh -huh. wife can. For me, it's the whole tray of cookies. And when he said, you wouldn't expect an alcoholic to have one or two drinks a day and tell them just maintain, all right. of a sudden I was like, oh, I could actually take this and use this in other areas of my life. Yeah. Well, that's why I think they say recovery is like peeling the onion because you may start with one addictive behavior but often it morphs into another area. And then five years later, they realize, okay, I've gained 50 pounds. Now, what do I do? You know, and that's when they may check out OA <laughs> because, but at first, you know, that's the other thing is I think we have to be really mindful and respectful that people starting out may only be able to tolerate one program at a time, you know, especially if it's AA. Yeah. Absolutely. And for me, that's the way it had to go. I had to do these stepping stones. So it's one yep. thing at a time. And it's been almost nine years. Mm. And I'm still working on the food, right? <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm overtired, it's like, oh, that dessert looks really tasty right now. I'm going to have yeah. it. And it just snowballs from there. Yep. But, you know, many people have a really hard time admitting that they have a problem. I know I did when I came in, you know, to the rooms and there's mm -hmm. a lot of denial. What are the top signs that you notice most when it comes to people wanting help? They've got these addictive patterns. Do you mean what are the signs of addiction? Is that what you Yeah, mean? yeah. Okay. So I think the biggest one is using or doing the behavior despite consequences. Because if you're doing it when you know, okay, this is hurting me, but I cannot stop, that's a really clear red flag that you have crossed over into not being able to control it and you're into that powerlessness part. Um, obsessive thinking is another one. You know, if you're constantly thinking, when's my next cookie? When am I going to be able to shop? When am I going to be able to be alone to do this thing? Um, and, you know, a lot of times there's also relationship problems, right? There's lots of chaos in their life because they don't know how to manage their lives because the addiction has taken over. So those are kind of some of the things that come up for me. So speaking of relationships, because codependency is, is an area I think is probably a hot topic for most people, but right. how does codependency, you know, it affect the rest of your life, essentially? Well, I think codependency is kind of that tree with many branches. It mm -hmm. literally goes in so many directions, um, but it's a pattern where you're focusing on others at your own expense. That's kind of my own definition. So you're helping, you're trying to fix, you're trying to control, you're the first one to volunteer. And, you know, honestly, some of those are really good traits. So part of, I think, what's hard when you're codependent is you don't want to stop giving because that's who you are and that's where you get your validation. And I don't think we have to stop giving. We just have to stop giving when it hurts us. 
So we have to find that boundary of, you know what, I can, I can volunteer at church if I'm able to, but if I have 10 other places I'm giving, I may have to reassess that and go, you know what, I don't want to be giving as much as I'm giving because I don't have any time for me. So it has to be, you know, I think recovery from codependency is really about balancing your life out instead of using other people as your form of happiness. Um, I know for me, I got really stuck with wanting that validation of friends and it took me a long time and some crash and burn <laughs> uh, relationships to realize that, wow, I am counting too much on my women friends. I didn't do it in my male uh, romantic relationships, but to really recognize that that doesn't work because people get overloaded and they can feel the neediness and then they typically burn out and go, I'm out. Oh yeah. And I've been through so many relationships where I'm like, I look back now and I'm mm. like, whoa, was I ever codependent? <laughs> like this yeah. is insane. And I, I think just the word itself, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not codependent. Like there's, there's yeah. no way I am. Right. But I think a lot yeah. A lot more people are than they think. Does expectations yeah. come into play a lot with codependency? Oh, sure, because usually their expectations are unrealistic. They expect other people are going to give the same as they do, which there's no way because we're super givers. And we expect other people or outside sources to validate who we are. And, you know, if you can't validate yourself, you will always be chasing that validation. And that's a painful way to live. Yeah, it is. And I think that's one of the things that I've been focusing on big time over the last couple of years is self-love. You know, I got mm. used to traveling by myself. I got used to setting boundaries with mm. people in my life and really going, okay, I need to be okay with being in my own presence, just alone, being quiet. And so that practice mm -hmm. has allowed me to be present in my current relationship, even when things aren't going okay, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm still okay. And that's a really good feeling. That's huge recovery because most codependents don't want that. Mm -hmm. They like, even when I started my codependency recovery, my idea was, okay, I'm just going to find healthier people to attach myself to. <laughs> it, it took me a long time to realize I'm the problem. My attachment is the problem because, and you know, I was just talking to someone today and they were saying that, you know, their idea of codependency was the enabler and the alcoholic. So they didn't think they were codependent. And the thing with codependency is you may not relate to being a people pleaser, but you might have control issues and perfectionistic tendencies. You know, you might negate yourself and your needs in your relationships, but you might also be assertive. So there's no like pat list that you have to do all these things to be codependent. You may, you know, there, there are lots of different ways codependency shows up. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I mean, when it comes to, I know a lot of probably parents that suffer or their mm -hmm. kids suffer from oh, addiction, yeah. enabling my mom was terrible for that. Um, I think, I don't think people realize that they are being codependent when they're enabling that addiction. Do you see that a right. lot or hear that a lot? I do. Uh, I, I've seen that and heard that a lot in Al-Anon. Um, and that's why I'm so glad they have meetings specifically for parents, because I think for them to be able to have each other uh, is super, super important. But yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the hardest person to detach from is your kid. 
because you feel so responsible. And if you're codependent on top of that, you really feel responsible for how they're turning out and the whole, why, why is my kid, you know, in the throes of addiction and my sister's kid is not, you know, there, there can be a lot of shame attached to that. And so now I believe that going to support um, networks, like having a support network, joining a program is essential for recovery in anything yeah, because I do too. you can, you can relate, right? I mean, I, I remember how good it felt to talk to another alcoholic and I was sharing my crazies and they're like, oh, I've done this and this, right? So there's something to be said about surrounding yourself with people who are dealing with the same thing. But right. if somebody is not willing to, say, join a program mm -hmm. or get a support network, how can they start working on codependency, for example? So, I mean, we're living in a time where there's so much information. So they can do an online course. They can do a workbook. There's, I think books are helpful for the academia part of it to understand what codependency is, but I don't necessarily think you can heal from a book, uh, but there are some great materials out there. I mean, honestly, that's why I created my codependency workbook because I thought, what did I need 30 years ago? I needed like literally what's a boundary? How do I take care of myself? How do I trust myself? Because I definitely didn't. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of good material, but I think at some point, you know, finding your tribe, even if it isn't a 12-step program, what I recommend is, you know, most codependents know other codependents, right? And you can get three or four other people, take a book, take a workbook and meet weekly and work through it together. Because I don't think healing codependency is realistic by yourself. Because I don't, I want to keep doing what I'm doing right? It's, it's easier. I need somebody else to go, well, Michelle, why don't you double think that? Because you're not really standing up for yourself. You're more concerned about what they think. And I'm like, oh yeah. So I think that reality check is super, super important, which is why 12-step programs are ideal. Absolutely. And I, I noticed ever since I started surrounding myself with people who weren't enabling me, mm. that slowly started to change my behavior. You know, I would I would tell, you know, somebody something and they'd be like, come on, Tamar, don't you think you're a little, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're a little off there, but you you almost have to hang out with people who won't co-sign because right. then it allows you to get a bit of a reality check once in a while. Right. And in the beginning, some people are super uh, afraid of feedback. So literally you could, you could have three or four people and have the rule be, you know, maybe you ask first before you get, give feedback because people get really scared. I think there's a huge hurdle in getting into recovery and starting this process because they just, you know, they might have a lot of false evidence appearing real going on and what that means about who they are. And really it means you're courageous because codependent people are generous people with huge hearts. You know, they're not bad, they're not wrong, you're not crazy, you know, but you mm -hmm. need help. Absolutely. Now you mentioned you have a workbook. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So um, during COVID, I was bored <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I love creating products. I. I don't know, there's something very, um, that's part of the reason why I like my online stuff because it gives me an outlet to really create for somebody. And I you know, can think of myself because I'm a codependent and what I would have wanted. So I just started writing this workbook about the seven kind of core areas of 
codependency recovery and walking somebody through questions and prompts and definitions and because 12 step program is great, but I, and I, and working the steps is life-changing, but I also needed something practical. Like how do I trust my intuition? I don't even know where to start with that. And my sponsor couldn't really, you know, she could tell me to read the big book, but I needed some practical things too. So that's part of what the, um, workbook is. And then I added videos for each module because I like to connect with people. And I, for me, I like to hear somebody too, that helps me learn the information better, not just uh, reading and writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I love that too. I like connecting one-on-one -on -one with people. That's why I'm always like, let's jump on a call. Like I want to hear what's going on with you because chances are I understand it because yeah. I've been through it. Right. And then they tend to open up a little bit more. Now you deal with anger quite a bit too, correct? I do. I do. <laughs> what does that look like? It's funny because a lot of um, fellow therapists kind of like have a deer in the headlights look <laughs> like, ooh, you work with anger. And that was one of my first internships after the alcohol treatment is I helped co-lead a 52-week anger management program for people who are arrested. And I loved it because all of them all of them were from dysfunctional families where they saw abusive anger or they were abused as kids. So it was super easy for me to connect and to validate that while their present behavior was abusive and it was, you know, definitely what we're targeting, they weren't bad people. And to make that distinction was super important. And the one thing about anger is, you know, as a codependent, I didn't have my anger. I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> I'm going to be nice if it kills me until I was in my, I think it was in my thirties. I'm 53 now, but it was in my mid thirties. And I realized I am so full of resentment <laughs> that I am going to explode. So I, I wouldn't let it come out as anger, but it definitely became resentment. So I had to start looking at, you know, how do I admit that I'm upset or that what you said bothered me? And so that's where I started going into my own recovery about how do I do that? And then it kind of, along with my education, kind of created some more uh, ways to help people, which I really love. Yeah, absolutely. Now, resentment. I have to touch on this because this is such a big word. And I, I don't, I just, when I finally realized how resentful I was and to mm -hmm. whom, Mm -hmm. And it was really difficult to be told, what is your part in that, right? Because yeah. resentments can kill an alcoholic or an addict. Yep. So what are your thoughts on resentment? Because I know that a lot of people don't even think to work on that when they first come into some sort of recovery. Well, I think it, it'll show up eventually in their relationships. So if you have a good sponsor, they're going to be like, Ooh, okay. So it sounds like we have some fourth step work to do. <laughs> uh, but I think, yeah, owning your part. And sometimes, I mean, as a kid, I tell people, you know what, you probably don't have a part of things that happened to you as a child because you are an innocent victim. And that's, however, if in reaction to what happened, you are now treating that person in a disrespectful way, that's the part that we can look at now. Because sometimes maybe we were abused as kids or, or we were disrespected and we're holding on to that. And because we're holding on to that, we're ignoring that person. We're having a tone every time we talk to that person. That's our part. 
but it's super easy to miss because we think, well, yeah, but they abused me as a kid, right? So we can justify that versus, well, how are you behaving towards that person today? Because sometimes that's where they can more easily find their part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I actually was in a very toxic relationship for about four years, and he actually just passed away from overdose. But oh. it for when I, you know, was first doing the work on myself, seeing my part in that scenario, I was with the guy for four years. He was an addict as well, and mm-hmm. it ended in assault. And both of us were very emotionally abusive throughout the relationship towards mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. But I had a really hard time looking that, and I was like, wait a minute. I mm-hmm. was in this relationship for four years because I was incredibly codependent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And I right. couldn't get out of it. So my part, you know, wasn't the assault. I didn't bring right. that on because I was leaving. But my part was I stayed in this for longer than I should have, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's super important for anyone considering leaving an abusive relationship to have a safety plan. And to make sure that you're doing that in a way that is safe and you're protected because that can be the time when abuse happens is when we finally leave. So yeah, I'm I'm sorry that happened to you. It has been a really healing experience. And actually the fact Mm -hmm. that he just passed away from addiction is just kind of closure, right? And it's part Mm -hmm. of why I'm on this mission because I want to help people realize that there is a whole different world outside of addiction as well as recovery. I mean, recovery, mm-hmm. you build that foundation, you start to clean up your head. And you mentioned it earlier about addicts not being, you know, bad people or right. people who are angry not being bad people. I think for a lot of us, we have been through so much adversity that we actually have been given this gift. If we, if we can just harness that energy that we used in addiction and bring it into recovery mm-hmm build that foundation like we've been given a gift we have things right. we can talk about that other people can relate to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah yeah and sharing our pain and being willing to share our story helps somebody else feel like they can share theirs so it's it's really helpful it does absolutely so do you notice a lot of people that you work with they do go on to do really great things in their lives yeah. I mean, I think what they do is they start to feel more confident in what they want to create. So, you know, sometimes part of therapy is what do you do for fun? You know, it's not, let's talk about your mother again. <laughs> it's, you know, really like, where do you want your life to be? Where's your joy? You know, do you have a hobby? Do you have a passion? Because to me, that's such a huge part of recovery that. Uh, I didn't even realize until I think it was like, I don't know, in my thirties again, a lot happened in my thirties. And I, I wanted, I've always wanted to meet movie stars and I never thought of a way to do it. And I was like, I don't know how that's never going to happen for me. And I started going to film festivals and I started getting autographs and meeting George Clooney. And I saw all these people. And what that taught me, I went every year with my mom to Toronto. It was super fun but it was doable. And it made me realize that I could actually fulfill that joy by myself instead of living in the, oh, that'll never happen for me, right? And it was really it was really life-changing for me. And that's when I brought it into my work because I thought, heck man, we gotta, we gotta find the fun stuff. 
not just, you know, the hard drudgery work. Yeah. And recovery is fun. I mean, when you get to yeah. a point where you yeah. clean up your life, you're like, okay, I remember everything. That's the best part is you actually remember everything. Right. <laughs> Right. That's true. Right. But I always tell my clients, I'm like, we are what we think, right? Mm, Because so many people focus on what it is they don't want. And it's like, how about you try and focus on the things you actually do want? Right. And I think there's a shift in recovery where people can come into recovery in the first few years, you're focusing so much on the problem and your history and what's happened to you. And all of that is super important. But at some point, if you don't shift into today and what you wanna create for your life, you're gonna get stuck there. And that's where I think it's super important to you know, be able to have as many resources as you can so that you don't get stuck. And do you notice or do you deal with a lot of people that tend to relapse at that point? Because that's what I'm noticing, especially mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Like those people who aren't doing what they love and that are in recovery are getting really complacent. And it's scary because yeah. their easiest option is just to go back out because they forget what it was like. Right. Well, they're they're not able to take that leap of faith yet. And, you know, usually we have to hit another bottom to do more change. You know, even in recovery, I think we have to hit bottom again with whatever issue is up to go, okay, I'm powerless. You know, God's going to help me out or your higher power. And I have some trust that this is going to get better, but it's, it's kind of the cycle of every issue we have, right? We have to face that powerlessness again. But to me, that's the positive because that means I'm not hundred percent responsible for the solution. I just have to do the footwork. Exactly. Now, what is it like being in this line of work? Like, how does it make you feel helping people to this level? I love it because I love recovery. And I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, it would just be so uh, foreign. I mean, one of the things, uh, when I was 14, my best friend got sober. And it was like, really cool. And I went to AA with her. And I, and even though I wasn't an addict, I was like, I really like this place. <laughs> and it was another, you know, aha moment of, ooh, I really like the healing, the connection, the honesty. That's so aligned with who I am that for me, being a therapist was just something, I don't know, I just can't imagine doing anything else because I love sitting down and talking with people. Yeah. It's amazing line of work. I mean, I do the coaching side of it. So I will usually work with friends of mine that are counselors and they're like, okay, I've gotten them to the point where they're clear headed and now you can take them Mm -hmm. and help them achieve their goals. But there is something very, very rewarding about seeing that light go on in somebody else's eyes. And it's like, they're getting it. They're really getting it. Yeah. And and even even when they don't or they're not ready yet to just sit with them and say, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I get that you're not ready to stop yet because, you know, unfortunately there's some, and I guess I don't want to do right, wrong, but there's definitely some people in the field that think, you know, you shouldn't be drinking with people. You shouldn't be counseling people who are actively drinking. I don't know if I agree with that. I'm not saying they make a lot of progress um, because they're certainly stuck, but sometimes some short-term therapy just, to reach out and connect and know that there's help available, I think is super priceless for them because they just need to know they're not alone. And maybe at some point later, they'll be willing to do the work, but you know, that's not up to me. Well, that's the thing. If you plant the seed, 
That's right. Then they always know that they have somewhere to go and they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. I really that, believe that. That's so you, awesome. You and I are so alike. I, <laughs> I, can, I can totally relate to you. This is great. I know. It's fun. It's I, I keep telling people, I'm like, they're like, what is your secret? Because I go to bed very early at night because I can't wait to wake up in the morning. And I could, a year and a half ago, two years ago, I could not say the same thing. Like mm -hmm. I would be pulling myself out of bed at, you know, uh -huh. six o'clock going, no. And now I can't wait to wake up. I get up at four. I don't even need my alarm most days because I love what I'm doing. You wake up at four? I wake up at four. <sighs> Holy cow. And that's, you know what, I, I, I give it all to, you know, first building that foundation and really yeah. owning my life yeah. and learning through being complacent for almost six years that I'm like, I got to get off my butt and do something like I have to change my mindset because mm. recovery is not enough alone. I don't believe I think you need more, you know, you can't get yeah. stuck. Yeah, no, I agree. That's why usually when people come to me, I almost always recommend 12 step programs because therapy is great. I obviously believe in it, but I don't believe an hour a week is enough for somebody to get the amount of support they need to really make the changes. They need some other form of support and it doesn't have to be 12 step, but because it's, you know, because that's what I know. I mean, I, I really believe in it, but I will always support somebody in finding some way to get their tribe because it's just so much easier when you don't feel like you're the only one on the planet struggling. Totally. So if people want to learn more about what it is that you do or connect with you, how can they do that? So my website is counselingrecovery.com. And I think my IG handle is the same. So is my Facebook page. I'm pretty active. Uh, and Pinterest. <laughs> I love Pinterest kind of fun. Pinterest is cool. I've actually just kind of started to get into that a little bit more. And I don't think so for any entrepreneurs listening, Pinterest is a good way to promote oh, yeah. your business. Yep, it is. It that is. And you know, people can read our stuff and get help where they might not have found you anywhere else. So it's to me, it's kind of also a way of giving back, you know, because you're helping people that you may never meet, which I think is kind of cool. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Wasn't that a great episode? I really enjoyed my chat with Michelle. I love how more and more people are just trying to bring awareness to, you know, mental health and how so many of us struggle from it. And I hope by talking about it a little bit more openly that people aren't as afraid to come forward because I think that it's something that so many of us suffer from and it's not something that we should be ashamed of. So, you know, if you ever need help, reach out. Uh, there's plenty of resources and of course, you know, if you have a story to share and you want to be on the show, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at tamar at theroadforward.ca and I would just absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, come on the show, share your story. Now, I did promise you a free bonus. Right now, you can download my first book, Hope Elevated, which became an Amazon bestseller last year. It was my first book where I share my story of how I overcame my 20 plus years of addiction to drugs, alcohol, and food, and well, I guess so many other things. Uh, so right now, if you head on over to my website at www.theroadforward.ca 
slash beyond dash recovery. You can pick up a free copy. You'll be emailed a PDF version of it. And of course, if you want to pick up the print, it is available on Amazon. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. Did you know that our dreams can become a reality? When you determine your purpose in life and you allow that purpose to guide you, anything is possible. It just takes action. Don't wait until you're ready. Start to create the life you were truly meant to live right now. I am super passionate about my mission to help people live up to their true potential. So if you want to learn more, check out my website at www.theroadforward.ca. And until next week, keep exploring what lies beyond recovery for you.